Welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. They say that blood is thicker than water. They say a lot of things about blood, actually. They say that there is bad blood between people. They say that someone has got blood on their hands. They say that something involves blood, sweat and tears. And it's not just in this culture across the world. In many cultures, people have sayings about blood. Um, I remember growing up in Macedonia, instead of bon appetit or enjoy your meal, people would say, which literally means may it become blood to you. And it sounds like a curse. And I thought it was a curse when I was younger. But then when I started learning more about biology and um, how the body functions, I realized that this was actually medically and biologically very accurate. Yes, the food does eventually become your blood. The nutrients from the food end up in your blood. So, albeit sounding very cruel and gruesome, this was actually a blessing. We were saying, may it become nutritious to you. Blood is important in many human cultures across the world. And in fact, the Bible talks about blood. A lot. The first mention of blood in the Bible is in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, and it's the famous story about Cain and Abel. Um, We know how the story goes. Cain kills Abel, and then God is the one who mentions blood first. He's talking to Cain, and he asks him, where is your brother, and what have you done? And then he says, listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So let us talk about what what happened um, here. The Bible says that Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God and both from the fruits of their labor. We are told that Cain offered of the fruits of the ground since he was a tiller of the ground. And Abel offered of the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions, since he was a keeper of sheep. But then the Bible also tells us that God had regard or had respect or looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but not on Cain and his offering. And this then made Cain very angry, so he invited his brother into the field and killed him. Now, much has been said throughout the centuries about why God had regard for Abel's offering and not Cain's. And some said maybe it was because God preferred animal sacrifices versus food sacrifices, vegetable sacrifices. Um, Some said it maybe it had to do with the fact that Abel brought the best out of his animals, whereas Cain just offered some of his vegetables. And some biblical translators tried to wrestle with this text and tried to translate it in a way that points out the reason for God's actions, and even um, some biblical writers try and wrestle with this text. For example, the the author of the epistle of of Hebrews, he explains this by saying that it was because of Abel's faith, because his offering was offered by faith. But the truth is, the Bible doesn't explicitly say why God had regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. However, what the Bible does say is that God had respect or regard or favor for Abel 
and his offering, and not for Cain and his offering. God had primarily respect, regard, and favor towards the character, the person of Abel. So there is a hint here that there is something about the person or the character of Abel that God respected, and something about Cain that he didn't. So let's talk about this. If we look at the text, it's very interesting. When Cain was born, there is a whole little story, a whole little narrative about how he came to this earth. First, we are told that Adam knew his wife, which for those of you who do not read their Bibles means they had sex. Um, Then she conceived and then she gave birth to Cain. There is some sort of a natural progression to this story. There is a sequence of events. There is a mini narrative. And at the culmination of this narrative, when Cain was born, Eve gave a speech. She says, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord, or in other translations, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Mind you, she doesn't say a son or a child. She says, she says, a man. She is saying that Cain was given to her from God, from the Lord. His origin, she's implying that his origin is almost divine in some sense. And she's saying this because if you think about it, a few verses earlier when, when God is talking to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And and Christian commentators throughout history, the history of the church, they have pointed out that Eve, in fact, believed that Cain was it. He was this offspring. He was the seed that will strike the serpent's head. And that's why Cain is from the Lord. He is a man from the Lord. Cain is the promised one in Eve's understanding. However, when when Abel was born, there was no story, there was no narrative, there was no speech. He's not called a man, a whole man. He's not even called Eve's son. He is simply called Cain's brother. Because he is not the promised one. He is not important. And even his name, Abel, in Hebrew, most likely this name comes from the word Hevel, which... um, the word Hevel was made uh, popular in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, it is translated often as vanity or, or meaningless or nothing. Uh, and what it literally means is breath or vapor, or smoke. Abel is nothing. He is meaningless. He is like vapor, like air. Now, you don't have to be a psychologist to imagine what it must have been like growing up in this family. You can imagine what Cain would have been like as a person after being told from his youth that he is the man from God. You can imagine the kind of the kind of privilege he enjoyed in this family. You can imagine the kind of attitude of superiority that he would have assumed. You can imagine a kind of ideology of supremacy that he would have developed. On the other hand, you can also imagine the kind of person Abel must have become growing up next to his brother, being called vapor, breath, nothing, having to live in his brother's shadow, being treated as less than a whole man, only the brother of the man. 
and we don't know how old they were when this incident with the sacrifices happened. But right after this incident, we are told that Cain went on to in, move to a different land and knew his wife. So we can assume that they were adults. So they spend a better part of their lives in this kind of atmosphere. And therefore, we can, we can imagine the kind of attitudes that they had at the time of the offerings. Cain, he comes from a position of supremacy and privilege, while Abel comes from a position of mar marginalization and oppression and injustice. And perhaps there was something Perhaps there was something more important about their characters than their sacrifices. Perhaps there was nothing wrong with Cain's offering. As a matter of fact, we are told later on in the Bible that God did accept food offerings from his people. But what Cain didn't know is that God is always on the side of the oppressed. God is always, he will always show respect to the downtrodden. He always has regard for the marginalized. He always looks with favor on those who suffer injustice. And as soon as, as soon as Cain's privilege was revoked, perhaps for the first time in his life, he became angry. As soon as he was told that someone else matters, someone else's life matters, his countenance fell. As soon as his supremacy was questioned, he killed his brother. Now, two things happened immediately after that I would like us to consider and, and pay attention to. First, God asks Cain, where is your brother? And Cain responds with the famous or infamous rather words, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain refuses to accept or to acknowledge responsibility for his brother's death. And at the same time, he denies any responsibility for his brother's life as well. And secondly, God responds with his famous words where he says, Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And later on, God goes on to say that the earth had opened its mouth to receive Abel's blood from Cain's hand. And this image of the blood crying from the ground or the blood-soaked earth crying became a very powerful image in, in Jewish imagination. There, there's, there's this idea present in, in a number of Jewish texts, um, this idea that the shedding of innocent blood pollutes the land, pollutes the earth, that um, the earth is crying and bringing accusations against those who shed blood on it, that even that God decided to destroy the world with a flood because of the injustice and all the blood that was poured on the face of the earth. Interestingly, though, in Genesis, the word that God uses is plural. God is saying Abel's blood, plural, Abel's bloods are crying from the ground. Abel's blood, therefore, throughout history became this symbol, this symbol of the lives of all the people that could have been, could have become his offspring had he lived. Also of the blood of all the innocent people killed and oppressed throughout the centuries. Therefore, Abel's blood 
Abel's blood cry through the centuries. And Jesus himself, he talked about it. Um, he rebuked the Pharisees and the law and the lawyers for building tombs to the prophets that their ancestors killed. He says to them, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. From Abel to Zechariah, from the first murder in the Hebrew Bible to the last, the blood is still crying and bringing accusations. The author of Hebrews he says that Abel, by faith, as we said before, offered God um, a more acceptable sacrifice. And that also, through faith, even though he is now dead, Abel still speaks. And later on, the author explains that it is actually Abel's blood that does the speaking. But that the blood of Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, speaks a better word. The Bible talks about blood a lot. Um, in the Bible, blood is equated with life. And therefore, the Israelites are told not to eat anything that has blood in it. Um, the shedding of innocent blood in the Bible is also associated with a special kind of guilt, uh, so-called blood guilt. And there are many examples of people who were aware of this idea of this special guilt uh, from Reuben, um, the brother of Joseph, all the way to Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Uh, blood was shed every time a covenant was being made. Um, Abraham cuts a bunch of animals in half, and then God walks between the halves in the form of fire. And then Moses also splashes blood on all the people of Israel when he received the law and when God made a covenant with Israel. That's how covenants were sealed, with blood. Uh, blood also had a central place in the worship, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. There was dashing, sprinkling, smearing, pouring of blood, and all of these things were part of the everyday services. And the tabernacle and later the temple, those were, those were gruesome, bloody places. And blood had... It had different functions and properties. Um, there was the, the function of protection. The blood was um, smeared on the doorsteps of all the Israelites during the last plague in Egypt. And every time they would celebrate Passover, they would do the same to remember that this would protect. It was meant to protect them um, from the angel. Another function was purification, um, also consecration. Finally, atonement. All of these functions were attached and associated with blood. And when we get to Jesus in the New Testament, his blood takes on all of these functions. Jesus' blood protects, purifies, consecrates, and most importantly, atones. But it also brings us into a new covenant with him. When Jesus instituted the uh, practice of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or the Holy Communion. He gave the disciples the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood of the new covenant. They say that blood is thicker than water. And that is supposed to mean that 
um, you know, family relations are, are more important or most important compared to any other relations. Um, but some say that the full thing is actually the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And that will then mean that a relationship which has been sealed by a covenant is actually stronger and more important than an actual blood relation. And when we enter into the new covenant with Christ, we enter into a covenant with each other. When we receive Jesus' blood, we become more than blood relatives. We are tied with a blood which is thicker than your average. When we accept the blood of Jesus, we become sisters and brothers. And us, as Christians, we, we love the blood of Jesus. We love to talk about it. We pray about it. We preach about it. And we especially love singing about it. We, say, we sing songs that say, uh, one day when I was lost, he died upon the cross. I know it was the blood for me. Songs that say, oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow. Even songs that say, doesn't matter what color you are, as long as your blood was red. Or, or the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. And uh, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And we probably sound, sound crazy and scary, um, frankly, to our non-Christian friends. Because we, we sing things that say, Oh, precious is the flow that washes white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then we fixate on this fountain. We say there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We love talking about the blood of Jesus. But we forget about the blood of Abel. We forget that when we enter a covenant with Jesus, we need to answer some questions. When we claim the blood of Jesus, we become our brother's keeper. God is asking us, where is your brother? And he is saying, listen, the blood is crying from the ground. Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus is speaking a better word than the blood of Cain. And we tend to focus only on those better words. Because the blood of Abel disturbs us. Because the blood of Abel is saying, what the blood of Abel is saying is, is traumatizing. The blood of Abel is crying. And what the blood of Abel is saying is, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence? And you will not save. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? It's crying, my life matters. It's crying, I can't breathe. It's crying, no justice, no peace. From Zechariah, from Abel to Zechariah, the blood is crying. 
from St. Stephen to Martin Luther King, the blood is crying. From Tamir Rice to Stephon Clark, the blood is crying. From Michael Brown to Ahmaud Aubrey, the blood is crying. From Eric Garner to George Floyd, the blood is crying. From Joy Gardner to Breonna Taylor, the blood is crying. From Grenfell Tower to Bailey Mujinga, the blood is crying from the ground. It is screaming accusations. It is shouting. And yes, the blood of Jesus does speak a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness. The blood of Jesus speaks reconciliation. It speaks peace, love. But we cannot claim the blood of Jesus and be deaf to the blood of Abel. My prayer is that when we eat the bread, and when we claim membership in the body of Christ, or when we drink the wine and we enter the covenant through his blood, and when we do this in remembrance, in remembrance of Christ, that we also remember Abel. And that we remember that we are indeed our brother's keeper. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com. Mm-hmm.